Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? On tonight's episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark, I bring to you the first three chapters of an epic nine-part series by author Jasper DeWitt entitled The Patient That Nearly Drove Me Out of Medicine. I write this because, as of now, I am not sure if I'm privy to a terrible secret or if I myself am insane. Being a practicing psychiatrist, that would obviously be bad for me, both ethically and from a business standpoint. However, since I cannot believe I'm crazy, 
I'm sending this story to you because you're probably the only people who would even consider it possible. For me, this is a matter of responsibility to humanity. Let me say before I start that I wish to be more specific about the names and places I've mentioned here, but I do need to hold down a job and can't be blacklisted in the hospital system as someone who goes around spilling the secrets of patients, no matter how special the case. So while the events I describe in this account are true, the names and places, oh, they have to be disguised in order that I can keep my career safe while also trying to keep my readers safe. What few specifics I can give are this. My story took place in the early 2000s at a mental hospital in the United States. I was, at the time, going through my residency and was assigned to assist the actual presiding physicians with their various duties, including therapy, prescriptions, etc. Normally, a resident doesn't do any actual medical work on their own. You're just supposed to watch and learn, for the most part. However, at this hospital, the staff was stretched so thin that I actually ended up less an assistant to the presiding physicians and more an unofficial equal of theirs since I got little to no assistance with the patients I was assigned to treat. This might have upset some residents, but actually I found it very refreshing. I'd graduated from one of the top medical schools in the country and had taken this position primarily because I wanted to stay close to my then fiance who was just finishing up her senior year at college, and this was the only hospital near her school. My professors tried to talk me out of it, saying such an appointment was beneath me, and that I could have better prospects, but my heart won out over my wallet. Besides, I told myself, it'd just be a job I'd take for a year until my fiancé had completed her studies and would be free to move on with me. About this much, at least, I turned out to be right. Even so, if I'd known what that year would hold, I'd have reconsidered. It probably won't surprise you that working in a mental hospital, especially an understaffed one, is both fascinating and dreary. On one hand, you get to encounter people with views of the world that would be darkly comical if they weren't causing so much suffering. One of my patients, for instance, tried desperately to tell me that an undergraduate club at a certain elite university was keeping some sort of giant, man-eating monster with an unpronounceable name in the basement of a local restaurant, and that the same club had fed his lover to it. Actually, the man had seemingly had a psychotic break and killed his lover himself, but it wasn't any good telling him that. Another, meanwhile, was sure that a children's cartoon character had fallen in love with him and had murdered some random internet artist for depicting her in a matter he found demeaning. Then there were the three or so elderly black gentlemen, every one of whom thought they were Jesus, which made them all yell at each other any time they were in the same room. The funniest part was that one of them even had some sort of background in theology and kept shouting random quotes from St. Thomas Aquinas at the others, as if this somehow made his claim to the title of Savior more authentic. Again, it 
would have been funny if their situation hadn't been so depressingly hopeless to watch. But even among company like this, every hospital has at least one patient who's weird even for the mental ward. I'm talking about the kind of person who even the doctors have given up on, and who everyone gives a wide berth no matter how experienced they are. This type of patient is obviously insane, but nobody knows how they got that way. What they do know, however, is that it'll drive you insane trying to figure it out. Ours was particularly bizarre. To begin with, he'd been brought into the hospital as a small child and had somehow managed to stay committed in the hospital for over 20 years despite the fact that no one had ever succeeded in diagnosing him. He had a name, but I was told that no one in the hospital remembered it, because his case was considered so intractable that no one bothered to read his file anymore. When people had to talk to him, they called him Joe. But no one talked to him, because he never came out of his cell, and pretty much everyone was encouraged just to stay away from him, period. Apparently, any kind of human contact, even with trained professionals, made his condition worse. The only people who saw him regularly were the people who had to change his sheets or who had to make sure he took his medication. These visits were invariably eerily silent and always ended with the staff involved looking like they'd drink a liquor store given the chance once they'd finished. Being a young, ambitious doctor with a lot in the way of grades and a little in the way of modesty, I was fascinated by this mystery patient, and as soon as I heard about him, made up my mind that I would be the one to cure him. At first, I only mentioned this as a sort of a passing, half-hearted joke, and those who heard me duly laughed it off his cute, youthful enthusiasm. However... There was one nurse who I confided my wish to seriously. Out of respect for her or for her family, I'll just call her Nessie, and it's with her that this story really begins. I should say a few things about Nessie, and why I told her in particular about this. Nessie had been at the hospital since she first emigrated from Ireland as a newly minted nurse in the 70s. Technically, she was a night nurse, but judging from the hours she'd worked, you'd think she lived at the place and seemed to always be on hand. She was also an immense source of comfort to me and the other residents who weren't used to working on a mental ward at all, let alone one that was so understaffed. But Nessie seemed to know how to solve practically any problem that might arise. If a raging patient needed calming down, Nessie would be there, her fading black hair done up in a no-nonsense bun, and her sharp green eyes flashing from her pinched face. If a patient was reluctant to take his medicine, Nessie would be right there to coax him into it. If a member of the staff was absent for an unexplained reason, Nessie seemed to always be there to cover for him. If the entire place had burned down, I'm pretty sure Nessie would have been the one to tell the architect how to put it back just the way it had been. In other words, if you wanted to know how things worked or wanted any advice of any kind, you talked to Nessie. 
This alone would have been reason enough to make me approach her with my rather naive ambition. But there was one other reason on top of all of that, I have said, which is that Nessie was the nurse on the night shift who'd been given the task of administering medication to Joe himself, and was thus one of the few people who spoke to him on any sort of regular basis. I remember the conversation distinctly. Nessie was sitting in the beaten-up hospital cafeteria, a worn styrofoam cup full of coffee held in her surprisingly firm hands. I could tell she was in a good mood because her hair was down, and Nessie seemed to adhere to the rule that the more tightly wound she was, the more tightly her hair should have been done up. For her to leave it undone meant that she was probably as relaxed as I'd seen ever in months. I filled a cup of coffee for myself, then sat down opposite her. Noticing me, her face opened into a rare, unguarded smile, and she inclined her head in greeting. Hello, Parker. How's the resident child prodigy? She asked, her voice still carrying a slight Irish lilt that somehow made it that much more comforting. I smiled back. Apparently suicidal. Oh, dear, she said with marked concern. Should I get you a spot of the antidepressants, then? Oh, no, nothing like that, I laughed. No, when I say suicidal, I mean I'm thinking of doing something that everyone else will probably think is very foolish. And uh, since it's foolish, you come and speak uh, to the oldest fool on the ward. I see how it is. I didn't mean that, I protested. Obviously, lad. Don't shake your britches, she said with a calming gesture. So what is the daredevil stunt you're thinking of? I leaned in conspiratorially, allowing myself a dramatic pause before answering her. I want to try therapy with Joe. Nessie, who had also been leaning in to hear what I was saying, sat back so suddenly and frantically you'd think she'd been stung. There was a splash as her coffee cup went flying to the floor. She crossed herself as if by reflex. Jesus, Maddie, and Joseph, she breathed, her full Irish accent flaring up. Don't go making jokes about that, you bloody idiot. Didn't your mom ever tell you not to frighten poor old ladies? I'm not joking, Nessie, I said. I really, but she cut me off. Yes, you bloody well are joking, and that's all you should be ever. Because otherwise... I'll have to box your ears, and there'll be no loin or the rest of the hospital staff behind me waiting their turn. Her green eyes were livid with anger now, but I could see, sensing, looking at her, that it wasn't at me. She looked like a bear who'd just pulled her cub out of danger. Gently, I put a hand on her arm. I'm sorry, Nessie, I didn't mean to scare you. The look of fury in her eyes softened, but it didn't make her expression any better. Now she only looked haggard. She placed a hand on mine. It's not your fault, lad, she said, her accent fading as the fright faded from her features. But you don't have any bloody idea what you're talking about, and it's best you never find out. Why? I asked softly. What's wrong with him? Then, knowing she might not answer, I added, Nessie, you know I'm too smart for my own good. I don't like puzzles I can't solve. 
It's not my fault, she said coldly, her eyes hardening again. But fine, if it'll stop you. I'll tell you why. Because every time I have to bring medicine into his room, I start to wonder if it wouldn't be worth locking myself up in this hospital just to avoid ever having to do it again. I barely sleep from the nightmares I get sometimes. So take my word for it, Parker, that if you're as smart a lad as you think you are, you stay away from him. Otherwise, you might end up in here with him. And none of us wants to see that. I wish I could say her words weren't in vain, but in reality, they only made my curiosity burn hotter. Though, suffice to say, this was the last time I openly discussed my ambition to cure the mystery patient with a member of staff. In fact, now I had an even better reason. If I could cure him, Nessie and everyone else who had to deal with him would lose what sounded like the main source of misery in their lives. I had to find the records on him and see if I could come up with a diagnosis. But no sooner had I resolved to follow this plan than I encountered one big problem. Since no one had bothered to remember his name... Requesting the file would be tricky under the best of circumstances. Worse still, it wouldn't have only been on paper, because the hospital was ludicrously behind on digitizing its old records, which meant I'd have to find some way to convince the records office to let me see it. I once tried to request it, saying there couldn't be more than one file that matched whatever it was he had, but as soon as the records clerk on duty realized who I was talking about, she told me to get out of her office in terms so colorful that I'm sure you can't print them. Eventually, I hit on a solution now. The records clerk who screamed obscenities at me generally only worked Monday to Friday and was replaced by someone else on the weekends. I still had no idea what to look for, but decided to act on a hunch that the name Joe must have come from somewhere. Of course, I couldn't go in and ask to see every patient whose name could have been shortened Joe without arousing suspicion, but I knew the records clerks would probably expect residents to ask stupid questions. I put in a request to take the following Saturday off, which was swiftly approved and waited with high anticipation. When the day finally rolled around, I rushed to the hospital records room. There, I asked the very apathetic old man now sitting in the records office if he'd let me have a look at the J section, because I thought one of the old guys who thought he was Jesus might have seized on that name due to it being somehow close to his own real name. It was a ridiculous theory, even for a first-year psych major, but the record guy was obviously too interested in getting back to whatever he had stashed under the desk to care. He let me in, gave me directions to where to go, and slurred at me that I better put the effing file back when I was done, before slouching back in his chair. I didn't need telling twice. I almost ran to the section he'd indicated and quickly started sorting through the massive number of files with either Joseph, Jonah, or even Joe as their listed names. I immediately ignored anything that had been entered after 1990, 
Since I knew the patient we had was supposed to be older than that, but this still left me with hundreds of files. However, most of these were easily dismissed as well, since most of them bore documentation showing that the patients involved had either died or had been discharged. Only a handful of files remained once I had finished my search. Two referenced paranoid schizophrenics, who I recognized as two of the Jesus trio. My initial dumb excuse, ironically, had been correct. One showed a photo of a bald-headed man who I recognized as the cartoon lover, and then there was the last one. I won't write the patient's full name, but his first name was indeed Joe. He'd been admitted first at 1982 at the age of six, and he was marked as still in hospital custody. The file was so covered in dust, I doubt anyone had opened it in a decade, and so thick that it looked like it might burst. But the clinical notes were still there and in surprisingly good condition, along with a crude black and white photo of a fair-haired boy giving the camera a wide-eyed stare. It made me feel like I was staring down a predator. Averting my eyes, I turned to the notes and started scanning them. Reading these, I saw that the many doctors who told me that there was no diagnosis for what Joe suffered from had been actually misstating the truth. It wasn't that there was no diagnosis. It was that there had been a couple, but that Joe's symptoms seemed to unpredictably mutate. Most surprising of all, however, was that Joe had actually been discharged at one point very early on in his chronic brush with the mental health system after only staying 24 hours in the hospital. Here are the full contents of the physician's notes at the time. June 5th, 1982. Joseph, last name appended, is a six-year-old boy suffering from acute night terrors, including vivid hallucinations of some sort of creature that lives in the walls of his room and which emerges at night to frighten him. Joseph's parents brought him in after one particularly violent episode in which Joseph's arms sustained significant bruising. He claims it was from the creature's claws, but the more obvious solution would be to assume the wounds were self-inflicted. A full chorus of sedatives, along with some basic therapy, was prescribed. June 6, 1982. In his therapy sessions, Joe was quite cooperative, though it took some time to get him to be receptive to the attending physician's explanation that the monster he thought he saw was really only his imagination. Even if the therapy didn't take, though, the sedatives seem to work, so we'll be releasing him after monitoring him for an additional 24 hours. I almost laughed. It seemed ridiculous that such a brief set of entries would become the prelude to decades of horror. Nevertheless, I pressed on. The notes indicated that Joe was apparently discharged after the additional 24 hours as promised. There was also a reference to an audio tape of Joe's one therapy session, the number of which I was careful to write down in the notebook I'd brought with me. However, the optimism of the doctors during Joe's first visit had obviously been misplaced, because the next day Joe was back again, this time with a much more serious set of disorders, and this time he was never discharged. The notes from his second admittance follow. 
June 7, 1982. Joe, last name omitted, is a six-year-old boy previously admitted for night terrors. A course of sedatives and some rudimentary coping techniques were prescribed. Unfortunately, instead of working, these measures seem to have worsened Joe's psychosis, which has also changed markedly since his first admittance. Rather than fearing a monster that lives in his walls, Joe appears to have regressed to a pre-verbal state while becoming unpredictable and violent. In his first few hours of being admitted, Joe has already assaulted numerous members of staff and has had to be restrained. It is notable that despite his being too young to know what he is doing, all his attacks have been on parts of his target's anatomy that are typically fairly vulnerable and or sensitive to pain. The one exception was an elderly nurse who he kicked in the shin, but even this fairly routine bit of violence had an unintended consequences, as that particular nurse had just had extensive surgery done on her shin and had to be sent home in a wheelchair as a result. We have attempted therapy, but after one session, Joe made no progress. Instead, he only made bizarre clicking and scratching noises and seemed incapable of bipedal movement throughout the entire session. Eventually, he became violent again and had to be restrained. Furthermore, his condition degenerated when he was moved back to his room as one orderly, Ashley M., broke hospital protocol and told him angrily that he was a bad little boy for kicking and punching so much. This seemed to make Joe able to speak again, but far from leading to more lucidity, he instead began screaming abuse at Miss M., mocking and belittling her with a variety of insults, almost all of which showed a level of psychological insight far beyond that of a six-year-old boy. They were so nasty that Ms. M. herself requested leave and subsequently entered therapy herself, claiming that the words Joe had used had triggered traumatic memories for her. Joe's violence, combined with this variety of psychologically targeted abuse, suggested either some variety of child abuse or else that he is a sociopath with paranoid delusions. Further study is needed. Now fascinated, I flipped to the entry for the next day. June 8, 1982. Joe continues to make no progress. However, we now believe we are dealing with at least some variety of sociopath, and a very precocious one at that. Today, when brought in for therapy, Joe began verbally assailing his therapist, Dr. A, much the same way he had attacked Ms. M. However, the content of his insults were completely different and, once more, targeted with a high degree of precision at Dr. A's personal issues. Fortunately, Dr. A was able to disengage from the attacks and try to use them as a means of inquiring about the state of Joe's mind. He was able to learn nothing from this and eventually released Joe from therapy in disgust. Dr. A later stated that the whole episode made him more tempted to break his 20-year-old AA pledge than any patient had in 20 years. No entries on Joe's therapy followed this one. Apparently one session had been enough to make the writer and attending physician give up in disgust. I shook my head. Even an understaffed hospital should put in more effort than this. Indeed, the only item from even the same year was a curt note from the chief of medicine 
to keep Joe isolated from the rest of the population. For four years after that, there was nothing. Anyway, where was I? Oh yeah, Joe's file, and the fact that it basically went dark for four years. Well, in 1986, the file started up again. It seemed funding cuts forced the staff to make patients share rooms. As such, there was a note from the new chief of medicine, Dr. A, instructing staff to find roommates who seemed unlikely to trigger whatever Joe's condition was. The staff evidently failed at this. The next memo that bore any content was also from Dr. A and was addressed to a Dr. G, who I knew as the present chief of medicine. It ran like this. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps because when it comes to getting the most out of your home you can do this when you Angie that download the free Angie mobile app today or visit angie.com that's a n g i.com oh 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 o'reilly you need parts o'reilly auto parts has parts need them fast we've got fast No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Memo dated December 14th, 1986 from Dr. A to Dr. G. I don't know whose idea it was to move Philip A into Joe M's room, but whoever it is, I want them fired. Putting a grown man with such serious anger issues in a room with a boy who's got such a powerful need to push people's buttons was obviously not going to have positive results. So, now it seems we have at least one patient whose family might press charges if they ever found out what their son has been through. I take it you've heard the stories already about Philip needing to be sedated before he could make good on his promise to kill the little effing monster. I don't know what this will do to Joe's condition, but I can't imagine it'll be good. After this first disaster, records indicated that Joe had been paired with someone closer to his age, an 8-year-old boy who'd been admitted for disorganized schizophrenia. This apparently had a much worse result. Memo dated December 16, 1986 from Dr. A to Dr. G. Our insurer will not be happy if we get more incidents like the one with Will A. The one bit of good news in it, I suppose, is that the autopsy shows no sign of foul play. I suppose Joe's violent tendencies must have been toned down a bit. 
But even if the autopsy will probably absolve us of any blame, I worry that a good attorney will pick it apart in court. When was the last time an eight-year-old died of heart failure? Check with the nurse and pray we didn't give Will too strong a dose of something. Joe's next roommate was a girl of 12, who'd been admitted with post-traumatic stress disorder from sexual abuse by her father. There was a note next to the new rooming arrangements instructing orderlies and nurses to periodically look in on the two because the girl apparently had a tendency to become violent at the slightest provocation. As it happened, she was the one who benefited from this protection. Memo dated December 18, 1986 from Dr. A to Dr. G. Fire every orderly on duty last night, except the one who caught them at it. I want him put in charge of the ward. You will personally take charge of Nadia I's treatment. Only an expert hand will be able to do anything after whatever that brat tried to do to her. And by the way, find out how he learned about that stuff. If the orderlies are talking about that sort of thing around juvenile patients, they need to be fired or reprimanded. Ten-year-olds might develop urges like that early, particularly boys, but it's not usually urges toward anything that specific. In the meantime, make sure we put restraints on Joe M's room so we can't do anything like that again. The last roommate Joe had, who was drawn from the general population of mental patients, was a teenage meth addict who developed severe paranoid personality disorder, probably picked because he would have been easily able to overpower Joe if the boy tried to assault him. What's more, as a further precaution against that sort of assault, the two were placed in a room where they could be permanently restrained to stop them from hurting each other. However, this didn't go any better. Memo dated December 20th, 1986 from Dr. A to Dr. G. Firstly, have someone look into getting us stronger straps for our beds. After what happened last night with Claude Y and everything else that's happened this past week, we're going to need to assure the public that nothing of this kind will happen again. Also, get the orderlies to go over the room one more time, because I am honestly incredulous at the explanation they're giving us. I don't care how paranoid Claude was. There's nothing in that room that could scare him enough to make him chew through several different leather straps and throw himself out the window. The straps would be hard enough, even with an average adrenaline rush, but to force open a barred window? There had to be something wrong with the bars or the bed or the window. One way or another, though, I mean to find out what that child is going to do to make accidents like this happen. Assign any orderly you want to stay the night with him tomorrow night. Make sure the orderly has everything he needs to defend himself. Tasers, batons, whatever. Treat this as a case of a criminally insane patient, even though we can't prove much of anything's happened beyond the Nadia incident. Oh, and get the orderly to take the tape recorder in. If that little bastard so much as breathes, I want it available for analysis. There was another record indicating where to find the audio tape that apparently resulted from this order. I jotted it down as well. There was one final communication from Dr. A on the subject of Joe, and in it, I finally found at least a partial answer for why the staff so despaired of diagnosing this particular patient. 
but unlike the previous documents, this wasn't a memo. It was a handwritten note, apparently, preserved by Dr. G. Dear Rose, I just spoke to Frank. I think it's fair to say he's not going to be ready for work for at least a month, the state he's in. And you know what? I'm actually going to let him have that time as paid sickly, because it's my fault he's like that. Can't punish someone for following your own orders. Mind you, if he's not better by the time it's over, we'll have to keep him here. I've also come to a conclusion. Whatever Joe has, I'm sure we can't cure it. I don't even think we can diagnose it. It's obviously not in the DSM, and given the effect he has on others, I'm starting to doubt if anyone could diagnose him. You know what? I think I'm getting ahead of myself. First, let's talk about what Frank told me. He says that the entire night, Joe just kept whispering to him. That's it, just whispering. But it wasn't a child's normal voice. Somehow, the boy had managed to make his voice go all guttural and hoarse, and he kept trying to remind Frank of things they'd done together, like he knew him from somewhere. But the thing is, Rose, the things Joe was trying to remind Frank of, they were all nightmares Frank had as a child. He said it was like the monster in those nightmares had been whispering to him all night, saying how much he missed chasing him and catching him and eating him. It sounded outlandish. How could a boy that young know what a 40-year-old orderly used to dream about? So I listened to the tape. And the thing is, I can't come to any other conclusion but that he imagined it. I didn't hear a sound, and the microphone was turned all the way up. What's more, Joe was restrained all the way on the other side of the room, so if he was making a sound loud enough for Frank to hear it, the mic would have picked it up. I don't think he could have distinguished it unless he was right up next to Frank's ear and whispering, which is obviously impossible. Even weirder is that, after a bit, I started to be able to hear Frank breathing very loudly, and his breathing patterns weren't normal. It sounded like he was hyperventilating, like he was having a panic attack, in fact. But I listened to it over and over again, and the thing is, there were no other sounds at all. So I have no idea what Frank's talking about. I now know for sure, after this session, and after the one I had with him, that we can't cure Joe. It'll take a better doctor than me to figure him out, and good luck finding one who will be willing to come work in this shithole. Maybe he'll die in here, but... There's nothing we can do. Rose, you're going to be chief of medicine one day. We both know it. We've both discussed it at length. I know you'll be tempted to try to treat him yourself. Please don't. I don't want you becoming a nervous wreck, too. Just keep him here at his parents' expense and feed them whatever story you have to. They're rich enough to afford a lifetime of care. Even if... They somehow go poor, find room in the budget. I couldn't have it on my conscience if I knew I'd had him in my care, and he somehow got out to cause trouble in the real world with whatever he has, just because we failed. Promise me, Rose. Thomas.
After this letter, there was only an official document stating that all therapy with Joe would be stopped. He would have his own room, but at the price of being kept restrained in it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Only a select few orderlies would be allowed to routinely change the sheets, and only the most experienced nurse would be given the task of administering medication to Joe. All staff were to be encouraged to stay away from him. He would not be referred to except by the extremely nondescript shortening of his name, so that anyone wanting to find out more information wouldn't know where to start. It was, in short, everything that I'd observed since arriving at my new workplace. Even so, if I'd been intrigued before, I was hooked now. Here lay the possibility of discovering a previously undocumented disorder, not merely a permutation of something already in the DSM, but something new entirely. And I had a patient zero under this hospital's roof. My choice of residency now seemed almost an act of God. There was just one thing to do now. Listen to the audio tapes I'd seen referenced. I immediately went back to the file clerk and showed him the record numbers for these, expecting to get them fairly quickly. However, to my surprise, after he'd typed in the numbers on his computer, his brow furrowed in confusion and he walked back into the records without a word. Some half an hour later, he returned, looking even more confused. There's nothing under those numbers, son, he said. Never has been. You sure you wrote them down right? I was quite certain I had, and anyway, I couldn't risk another trip that could alert him to which file I'd been looking at. Besides, if they had ever been there, it would make sense that they might have been destroyed or removed, given their connection to the hospital's biggest problem patient. I faked a tired grin and shook my head at the record keeper. Someone's playing a joke on me, I said. Sorry for wasting your time, sir. I walked out of the records office and snuck discreetly out of the hospital. I didn't want to be seen by someone who might wonder what I was doing there on my day off. Besides, I needed time to think about what the file had said before making any sort of attempt at speaking to its subject. That Joe had started with some sort of empathy-based disorder was obvious. What was confusing was how extreme it was. His emotional empathy, that is, the ability to feel what other people were feeling, was obviously non-existent. If he had been making people kill themselves and trying to rape a girl before he even knew what rape was. But his cognitive empathy i.e. the ability to recognize what others were feeling, must have been unbelievable, almost superhuman. Not only could he spot another person's insecurities, but he could predict with perfect accuracy how to exploit them in order to cause maximum distress. It was the kind of skill I'd have expected to see in a trained CIA interrogator, not something spontaneously developed by a young child. More puzzling still had been his apparent shift in tactics right after his disastrous encounter with his first roommate. Prior to that, the numerous therapy records had all indicated that his preferred approach was to induce feelings of anger or self-hatred in his victims. Yet immediately afterward, as if his modus operandi had changed on a dime, 
He switched to inducing fear so extreme it would trigger a fight-or-flight response. Why this sudden shift in approach? What had happened to change his symptoms? And that was assuming it had even been him who'd made those feelings of fear trigger. The fact that the orderly's encounter with him revealed only radio silence made the puzzle deepen. I went back and looked at the record of the first roommate. The implication was clearly that Joe had been assaulted. Could that assault have made him have a psychotic break and go catatonic? But then how to explain the obvious sexual assault of the following night? These were all questions I knew had plagued Joe's physicians for years, so the prospect of solving them in a single night without so much as talking to him was likely impossible. Still, my mind ran over them again and again, long after I tried to curl up in bed and fall asleep. Eventually, I drifted off. This didn't help. Probably because of the reference to the orderly's negative experience, one of my childhood nightmares resurfaced that night. I'd glance over it, only it has relevance to what happened later, so I'd better explain. When I was six, my dog Marty drowned in a nearby river. We'd been out playing fetch nearby, and in one particularly exuberant moment, I threw the stick so far out of sight that I couldn't see where it had gone. As it happens, it had landed in the river, and there'd been a rainstorm the night before, so the river was particularly turbulent. All of this is to say that when Marty ran to grab the stick, he got swept under by the current, dashed his head on some rocks, and drowned before being fished out a mile or so downstream. I'd known something was wrong when he didn't come back with a stick, and my parents tried to protect me from the worst of it. However, when they brought the corpse round to the house, I somehow thought I could bring life back to my childhood pet, so I fought to see the body. I still regard the sight of Marty's bleeding skull as one of my early childhood traumas, though I've since made peace with my own role in his death. But that wasn't true at first which is probably where the nightmare I'm about to describe came in. In the dream, I was standing on the edge of the river with Marty, but it wasn't just an ordinary river. Instead, it came alive and started trying to drag me under with long, wave-shaped, tentacle-esque arms. In the dream, I always managed to fight my way back to the shore, but Marty wasn't so fortunate and I had to watch as he paddled and struggled with the tentacles strangling the life out of him. I wanted to jump in and try to save him, but as is often the case in dreams, what you want to do and what the dream lets you do are different things. As a child, I would always wake up crying at the moment when his shaggy head vanished beneath the water. But the night after I found Joe's file, there was one more detail that jogged me out of sleep. And that was this. As Marty vanished, I could hear the river laughing. It was a throaty, moist, deep noise that sounded like it came from a throat that was in the process of rotting. I think I must have screamed, because the next thing I remember is my fiancé shaking me awake and holding me. 
Fortunately, the dream didn't recur that night, and I more or less forgot about it as I returned to the hospital, fully intending to see if there was some way I could get an audience with our mysterious problem patient. However, as I arrived, a new distraction presented itself. A crowd had assembled around the main hospital entrance, including more than a few people whose cameras and microphones positively identified them as reporters. Immediately curious what was going on, I found my way through the crowd only to see a stretcher holding a body bag being loaded onto a police van. Now worried, I scanned the crowd for any face I might recognize and spotted an orderly who I'd seen working on the same ward as me. I fought my way over to him and asked him what happened. Nessie died, he said, his voice so hollow it sounded as if it came from a million miles away. They're saying she threw herself off the roof last night, after making her rounds. No one knows why, but one of the patients says she did it after she'd finished, you know, with him. Now, just as horrified as my counterpart, I reached out and gave him a stiff, one-armed hug, as if to reassure him that someone else felt that same thing he did. He didn't react. Apparently, the shock was still too strong. Anyway, let's get back to the story so we can get it over with. I last left off with Nessie's suicide and how it shocked so many people. Frankly, it should have. Even though I'd only been a resident of the hospital a short time, I knew the loss of a nurse like Nessie would be felt for years to come. However, at the time, her death only gave me a thought that, in retrospect, I'm rather ashamed to admit. This could be my chance. It was obvious that they'd need someone new to give Joe his medicine, and the odds were long that any of the established nurses would be willing after what had just happened. Being a resident who everyone would assume was too naive to know what he was getting into... I could volunteer for the job and maybe get some covert therapy in with the mysterious patient. Then, if it went well, I could offer to maybe review his case. I immediately resolved to offer to work into the night to boost her goodwill and then use that as cover to make this request. Once the reporters and cops had cleared off and the hospital's operation had returned to at least slightly to normal... I followed exactly this course of action. As I expected, the attending physician was quite grateful to have another hand on deck for the night shift, now that Nessie was gone. However, the instant I broached the subject of bringing Joe his medication in Nessie's absence, all traits of his previous good humor evaporated. "'Hasn't anyone told you about that patient?' he asked. I confirmed that they had. Did you know that he was the last patient Nessie saw before she died? He asked. There was a slight hesitation in his voice that I could tell masked a quiver. I said I'd heard rumors, but nothing definite. You do realize that there's only a handful of people who ever go into his room, right? I said yes, and that because the number was so small... 
I'd assumed there was some sort of special permission required to enter. The attending physician started laughing. <laughs> Son, it's nice you care so much for a procedure, but it's all I can do to keep track of the patients here, let alone other doctors. You could have gone in any time you liked, but only a few people are willing to do it because they care about this hospital's reputation and realize we can't be seen to neglect any patient, no matter how difficult. But you're a damn resident. You just got started here, and I'm guessing you won't stay. What's your angle? I told him I didn't have one, but had honestly just wanted to help. That made him laugh even harder. <laughs> Listen, kid, I may not have graduated from a hotshot medical school like you, but I'm not stupid. You're overqualified to work here. You're at the most shaky point in your career, and yet, instead of asking to consult on a patient or do anything else, you're asking to do something a nurse usually does. You've got an angle, and I want to know what it is. There wasn't any way to stonewall my way out of this, and I figured it was better to look foolish than dishonest. I told him, honestly, that I wanted to try my hand at therapy with Joe. To my surprise, he didn't look angry, and he didn't laugh at me. He just looked tired and sad. I thought as much. You wouldn't if you'd seen his file. I considered telling him I had, but decided against it, telling him that I thought I could learn what might be wrong with Joe through careful observation. That did make him laugh, but it was more a bitter exultation than anything else. <laughs> Trust me, son. Observation won't help you. We've been observing him for over twenty years, and we still can't figure out what's wrong with him. We just know we need to keep it locked up. He leaned back in his chair and sighed expansively. I should reprimand you for trying to lie your way into therapy with a patient. Hell, I should probably consider firing you. I'd do just that if you were the normal sort of resident we get. But like I said, you're overqualified, and from what the other doctors tell me, you're managing to carry almost a full caseload despite being just out of medical school. So I'm not going to reprimand you or fire you. But... Therapy with that thing is out of my hands. If you want to get access to him or his file, we need to take you to someone more senior, much more senior. And if you're lucky, your request will be denied. So, are you sure you want this? Without hesitation, I nodded. He sighed again, stood up from his chair, and beckoned me to follow him. I did. It took me until we got to the elevator to realize he wasn't blowing smoke when he said he was taking me to someone more senior, because as soon as we got in, he punched in the number for the very top floor, which was where most of the executive offices were located. But it was only when I saw the nameplate on the office door he guided me to that I realized what was about to happen. He was taking me to see Dr. G., the chief of medicine herself. 
A few smart knocks on the door by my guide were all that was necessary for Dr. G to open it and look up at him expectantly. Yes, uh, what is it, Bruce? She asked in a voice as clipped and precise as her immaculately tailored skirt suit. My guide motioned to me. Rose, meet Parker H., he said. He's one of our residents, and he's just been to see me about conducting therapy on you-know-who. I told him we'd need to get you to approve it. Dr. G. turned her eyes on me, and I got the distinct impression that she was unimpressed by what she saw. Thank you, Bruce, she said, not turning her eyes away from mine. I'll take it from here. She motioned me into her office mutely, and I walked in, taking one of the soft leather armchairs that sat before her desk. Dr. G. sat opposite me, her eyes once more returning to my face, as if determined to peel it back and read my mind. It impressed me, at this point, that Dr. G. looked like the last woman I'd ever have expected to come into her post as a psychiatrist. I could not imagine this woman emphatically coaxing painful memories from damaged people. She didn't even look like she knew what empathy was. More than that, her entire effect was as cold and as intimidating as most psychiatrists are warm and soothing. Judging by the dates on the file I'd seen, she had to be at least in her early fifties, but she didn't look a day over forty, with shoulder-length auburn hair, piercing green eyes, and a round but slightly pinched face. I also noted that she was very tall, taller than me with the help of the pair of business-like black heels she was wearing, and real thin with a body that looked more like it belonged on an Olympic athlete than a doctor. If I'd been older, I probably would have found her attractive, but as it was, her hawk-like stare only had the effect of making me aware how painfully young and inexperienced I was. It was like being x-rayed by a very judgmental machine. After a few moments of considering me, she finally spoke. So let's start with the questions you're least likely to fuck up first. You just started here after graduating from medical school? I said I had. Which medical school? I told her. Her, she raised her eyebrows. And why would a graduate of someplace like that want to work here? I explained about my fiancé. Her expression softened a bit, but she still looked at me suspiciously. And you are actually in a residence to become a psychiatrist, yes? I said I was. She gave a brisk nod and considered me for a few more moments before speaking again. So why do you want to attempt therapy on an incurable patient? Well, I said, I'm not so sure he's incurable. How would you know? Have you spoken to him? No. Have you seen his file? No, I said just as quickly, yet something I said must have given away the lie because she glared at me. Try the truth next time or this meeting's over. I swallowed. Fine, I said. Yes. Better, she said. So if you read that and still want to work with him, you must have a diagnosis in mind. 
Care to enlighten me as to what you saw that the rest of us missed after twenty years of looking? It was a trap, and I knew I had to be diplomatic in answering it. I don't think you missed anything, I said quickly, but the file says he was last treated in the 90s. The DSMs have been revised since then, as you know. Stop patronizing me and get to the point. I swallowed. I think your first diagnosis might have been right, and might just be dealing with a very, very sophisticated sociopath. More sophisticated than we knew they could get in the 80s. There's obviously also sadistic personality disorder, and he may have some sort of psychological progeria, which makes him seem more adult. The oddest thing is his ability to induce delusions in those around him, which is rare but possible. Alternatively, I think you might also want to test if he has some sort of disorder with how he mirrors people's emotions. She put up a hand to stop me. Wrong, she said. I don't blame you for trying, but still wrong. And to be fair, you couldn't have gotten the right answer anyway. You haven't seen the file. I quirked an eyebrow. Didn't you just make me confess that I had? I asked. What you've seen isn't the full file. I'm not stupid. I know people find a way to game the records system every few years and look what's down there. So rather than remove his file intentionally, I just left an incomplete amount of documents in, knowing they'd scare off almost anyone who got access out of curiosity. What you've seen is what I wanted you to see. Nothing more. I blanked stupidly. How much more is there? I asked. She reached into a drawer in her desk and pulled out another file and two small rectangular boxes. She waved them in the air briefly, then put them back in her desk. Not much more, she said smoothly. The remaining documents are just a bit more hands-on and technical than what you've seen. And then, of course, there are the two audio tapes. Which, speaking of those, that's how I knew you were lying. Because any time someone requests those file numbers, our records clerks all know to drop me a note. They don't know why they do it, but I gather you can figure it out. The only way someone would know the numbers is if they'd seen the file, I said dejectedly. She nodded smugly. Which means that I knew you'd seen it before you even walked in here. She leaned back in her chair and gave me another satisfied, piercing look. I wondered if this was how mice felt when being stared down by a cat. So, she said briskly, since we've established that I am the one in this room who has access to the greater knowledge, tell me, aside from assuming we were too stupid to see something just because it wasn't in the DSM yet, or haven't considered that he suffers from a cocktail of rare disorders that anyone would have ruled out after 20 years... Why should I let you get close to a patient who I've sealed off from the rest of the staff? And please, assume my reasons are intelligent this time. I know something about being the smartest person in a place like this. She jerked her head at the wall, and her medical school diploma caught my eye. It was from one of the few schools ranked above my own. I swallowed. I... 
and paused to collect my thoughts. I suppose it's pointless just to ask what those reasons actually are. I'm glad you asked, she said, and to my surprise, she smiled. Let's assume it's pointless for now, but I credit you for asking a question instead of rushing to try to answer this time. That's one mark in your favor. However, I'd like you to try to guess the answer, and if it's insightful enough, perhaps I'll tell you. I considered. When I spoke next, it was slowly and deliberately. Well, I said, there's a couple of things that don't quite make sense about how he's treated, and I'm going to assume those are by design. So let me see if I can start there and work my way up. She didn't say anything, but she didn't stop smiling either. I was either on the right track or so spectacularly wrong it was funny. Well, no point second-guessing myself with no conclusive information. I pressed on. Let's start with the fact that the doctor who brought me to you said that anyone can talk to him if they want to, but nobody actually does, I said. And yet I got dragged up to see you just because I told somebody I wanted to attempt therapy with him. Theoretically, therapy can involve nothing but talking to someone. But if anyone's allowed to talk to him, then that must mean that you think he needs something other than talk therapy, or at least on top of it, something that requires hospital resources beyond just a doctor's time. You're on the wrong track, she said, rolling her eyes. Fighting the urge to winch, I started again. All right. So, maybe you don't need more than just talk therapy to treat him, I said, speaking more slowly this time as I tried to work the puzzle out. And anyway, you still discourage talking to him so heavily that I'm betting there's something dangerous about even doing that. But even if he's fine in small doses, someone randomly talking to a patient doesn't mean therapy. I can walk up to a catatonic patient and start talking to him, but that doesn't make him my patient. If I'm not responsible for him just because I tried talking to him. But if I formally take him on as a patient, then I've got a lot more responsibility, both for his treatment and for making sure it doesn't go wrong. Maybe his family could sue us if we did something really wrong. On the other hand... She was starting to interrupt, which meant that my last four words probably sound more panicky than they should have, but they had the desired effect. She shut her mouth and continued listening. I exhaled slowly. On the other hand, I continued, you already think he's incurable, so I'm guessing other doctors have tried everything they can with him and he hasn't been removed from your custody yet, so worries about his family being dissatisfied must not be a factor, which means there's someone else you're protecting. All at once, a bolt of realization hit me. There must be, because there's a note in the file from the last chief of medicine to you saying that even if his family stopped paying... He should be kept here at the hospital's expense 
in order to protect the outside world from him. But that still doesn't explain why you'd be so anxious about preventing doctors from taking him on as a patient. We're supposed to handle things that most people can't, after all. Words were tumbling out now, and I doubt she could have stopped me if she wanted to, but she showed no sign of wanting to. If anything, she looked almost proud. Unless the problem is even more dangerous for us, I went on excitedly, which isn't a normal problem to have with a psych patient, but it's pretty normal if you're dealing with someone who's under quarantine for a highly contagious disease. Those people really are kept off limits except to people who follow the proper procedures to treat them safely because of the increased risk from prolonged exposure. Just being in the same room as an Ebola patient for a few minutes doesn't guarantee you'll get infected, but spending hours trying to treat them without proper procedure is practically a death sentence. Similarly, judging by the way you've set everything up, Talking to this patient for a few moments probably doesn't put anyone in danger. But I saw what happened to his last nurse. She was exposed to him every night and ended up committing suicide. Which means you're worried about us taking him on as a patient because it means prolonged exposure, which we're more at risk from him driving us to do something like what she did. I stopped suddenly and felt a creeping chill run over me. Dr. G, if there were others who treated him, um, can I ask what happened to them? She lifted her hands and clapped slowly. Now that's a question I can't answer, she said softly, and I had to repress a double take. Her voice was no longer sharp but instead sounded suddenly vulnerable and mournful. Slowly, she reached into her desk, pulled out the same thick file, opened it, and began to read. Dr. A, obviously, did the initial diagnosis, or attempted it anyway, she said. But you probably noticed the four-year gap after that. Well, believe it or not, we didn't leave him completely alone during that time. People did try to treat him. In fact, she swallowed hard. I was the first. As soon as I finished my residency, Dr. A sent me to try it, thinking I was smarter than anyone else in this place and could work it out. And he was right. I was smarter. But that didn't stop me from trying to swallow a bottle of pills from the nurse's office just four months into treating Joe. After that, Dr. A removed me and placed me on a mandatory paid psychological leave so that I could get therapy to recover from the experience. I spent a few more months in a private clinic before returning, and I was never assigned to interact with him again. After me, his next doctor spent a year trying to treat him. That ended when the doctor in question stopped showing up at work. He was found later, two days when we filed a missing persons report. The police discovered him hiding in his house, suffering from what I gather must have been the after-effects of a psychotic break. I say, I gather, because the instant they entered his house, he ran at them with a knife and was promptly shot to death. She paused, 
gave me a significant look and went on. His next doctor only lasted six months before she went catatonic and had to be institutionalized here. I would say you might have treated her without knowing it, only she somehow managed to get hold of something sharp and slit her throat with it about a month before you started. In any case, after her, we assigned someone a bit tougher to work on his case. He had a military background and came to us from a hospital for the criminally insane. He lasted 18 months before he sent us a one-sentence resignation letter and put a bullet through his own brain. She reached the end of the page and heaved a deep, deep, heavy sigh. After that, Thomas, Dr. A, I mean, decided to take on the case himself. And to his credit, he actually survived the experience. However, he still refused to attempt further treatment after eight months. And when resigned as chief of medicine a few years later, he made sure his severance contract carried a stipulation that every chief of medicine after him would sign an agreement promising not to assign anyone to Joe's case who they don't personally interview for suitability first. Like all my predecessors, I have complied and refused to assign Joe a doctor without one of these screenings. Because you're right. His madness is contagious. I've seen it destroy my colleagues, and even the man who mentored and groomed me for the job I hold today. And it almost destroyed me. Her eyes met mine, and for a moment, I saw something behind the cold, sharp woman she'd been. I saw a crushed, angry young doctor, who'd thought herself brilliant just as I did, only to watch helplessly as one patient ruined her life and the lives of those around her. What does he do to people, Dr. G? I asked softly. If his madness is so contagious, I'd like to know what I should be afraid of. Maybe I can guard against it. Her eyebrows shot up and a bitter smile came over her face. I'm afraid I can't answer that, Parker, she said. Unfortunately, that's only a question you can answer, and you've earned the right, much as I hate the idea of putting anyone else in danger. But you've shown enough brains that maybe you might be able to do something with them. So let me ask you, what do you fear most? Um, I tried to think, but nothing that came to mind seemed like something I feared most. I don't know. Sorry, that won't do, she said. If you're going to attempt therapy with him, you need to know the answer to that question first. It's your first line of defense. In fact, if you treat him, it's mine, too. Because if I don't know the answer to that question, I'll have no idea what might be stalking my ward after your first therapy session. Try again. Take your time. An acute chill ran up my back. You mean he can just tell whatever? Just answer the question. That was as close to a yes to my unspoken question as it could get. So I thought. I thought for several minutes, in complete silence, with Dr. G never doing anything to interrupt me. She seemed as fascinated by the answer to come as I was stumped. 
I thought of all the usual answers, of course. Drowning, insects, fire. But one thing kept forcing itself back into my mind. The image of Marty paddling frantically against the stream as it sucked him under. That was the only one answer I could give. I'm most afraid of not being able to protect the people I care about, I said finally. I'm most afraid of being helpless to save someone. Dr. G raised her eyebrows with genuine surprise. Interesting, she said. And just now, is there anyone on my staff who you care about so much it would hurt you if they dropped dead? Don't bother being polite. Feeling chagrined despite her last instruction, I shook my head. She nodded. I thought not, she said. See that you don't develop any such attachments anytime soon. Without saying anything else, she pulled a blank sheet of paper from her desk, scribbled something on it, signed her name, and handed it to me. As of now, you are Joe's new doctor, she said. I will reassign you, if you ask me to, on one condition. You must make an appointment with me and tell me exactly what he did that made you decide you were not fit to continue as his physician in the most exacting detail you can. She reached into her drawer and pulled out two audio tapes and shoved them into my hands along with the remaining file. Oh, and Parker, she said, meeting my eyes, Try not to kill yourself first. To say that the doctor who brought me to see Dr. G was surprised when I walked into his office and showed him the piece of paper is a gross understatement. He looked so shocked and horrified that you'd think he'd seen a close relative murdered. Nevertheless, he was as good as his word and he added Joe to my list of patients with no complaints other than the customary warning not to let any other duties I had fall behind because of this new case. Then, as soon as he'd finished the paperwork, he gave me a very tired look. I'm guessing you don't need help finding his room, he asked, with more than a little irony. I shook my head. Thanks for joining me tonight for my performance of the first three chapters of author Jasper DeWitt's series entitled The Patient That Nearly Drove Me Out of Medicine. Join me again next week when we continue telling this thrilling story with a performance of the following three chapters. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted, and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors, Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. 
If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit CarShield.com slash audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at CarShield.com slash audio. That's CarShield.com slash audio.